I'm Jeff Reimer. I'm the teacher today, and we're going to be talking about the resurrection and whether it happened to a physical body, specifically, and why we have good reasons for believing that. Um, I've got a lot of material. I'm pretty excited about it, uh, so, but I'll try to get through all of it. Um, so, so sorry if it's a little bit like drinking from a fire hose this morning. Does everybody have a handout, an outline? I'll try to follow it pretty closely. Um, so to start out, I wanted to draw your attention to this giant painting up here. This is my favorite painting of the resurrection. It's not really a painting of the resurrection, but it's, it's called The Disciples Peter and John Running to the Sepulchre at the Morning of the Resurrection. Yeah. Talk louder. Talk louder. Here. Is that better? It's by a, uh, a Swiss painter named Eugene Bernard. He lived mostly in France, actually, uh, in the 19th and early 20th century. And I, it just seems to me that's a picture of faith. That's a picture of the life of discipleship right there. Two people running to investigate what has happened on Sunday morning of Easter. They've heard the news. They don't know what it means. Peter, you know, he, he looks like a, a Galilean fisherman, right? He looks a little confused. looks a little bit like an earthy man. John next to him, wringing his hands in anxiety going to see what's happened to their Lord. And I don't want to lose sight of, of that kind of uh, reality as we, as we talk about a lot of historical facts um, and kind of logical evidence. Um, that's, that's where we are. You know, we're, we're wanting to see. We, we want to know. Everything depends on it. So that's my little reflection to get going. Um, First thing I want to say about the resurrection is that it is an article of faith for Christianity and Christian belief. If you simply believe it without having the evidence I'm going to give you right now, that, that's a grace. That's, that's something that's been given to you by God, and um, that's good. You don't need all the evidence. On the other hand, your faith is not hampered by having good reasons to believe it. My faith has been greatly enhanced by having good reasons to believe in things like the resurrection. So, um, and in a lot of ways, especially in our world, it's hard to believe. I reflected on this a little bit uh, on our, our first week. Uh, the resurrection, you know, a, a dead man came back to life and stayed alive. How often does that happen in history? Well, once, as far as we know. The answer is zero or one, right? Uh, so it's difficult. It can be. Um, and there are many Christians who, while still claiming to be Christians, they have not left the faith. They don't believe in a physical resurrection, a physical bodily resurrection. Um, 
One of those who I'll talk about for a little bit is John Dominic Crossan. He is uh, a New Testament scholar. He is part of what was known as the Jesus Seminar that met back, I think, in the 80s and 90s. Um, a group of sort of liberal scholars who famously cast votes um, about whether things in the Gospels actually happened. And, you know, they had, little, they had little marbles. And if, you know, I can't remember the color scheme, but, you know, white was definitely happened. Gray was maybe it happened. And black was it definitely did not happen. And the bodily resurrection kind of among the Jesus Seminar and John Dominic Crossan was a leading member all the, all the, when they voted on bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ, all of them voted black, or at least dark gray. <laughs> um, but most of these scholars still claim to be Christians. But the reasons they have for rejecting these claims often have more to do with larger worldview issues, uh, like, well, if Jesus, and John Dominic Crossan says this um, explicitly, well, if Jesus rose from the dead, then that would hamper people who don't already believe in God from joining the Christian faith. It, was, it would also mean that Christianity is the only way to get to heaven. So in some ways he gets it, right? <laughs> he understands what's at stake. And he rejects it. He says, and this is, uh, I think he's going to be accountable for saying this someday, but uh, he says that Jesus' uh, body was probably put in a mass grave and eaten by dogs. And when the disciples fled, they didn't know where the body was. And by, this is a direct quote, by Easter Sunday morning, those who cared where it was did not know, and those who knew did not care. So that's just a little sense. I mean, there's a whole world of New Testament scholarship where this is the kind of ground presupposition. Uh, this is what they think happened. This is what they think about Scripture and about the resurrection. Uh, but I think in their in their attempts to make it more palatable, you know, they've they've gutted Christianity because Christianity is a historical religion. It's something that's based on events that actually happened, uh, especially with Christ. Um, and the resurrection has always kept has always kept Christianity tethered to history. There have been strains of Christianity that wanted to forget anything about the material world, the physical aspect of our existence, and Christianity has always said, no, we are a historical religion. You can point to the things that have happened in our past, and we've always preached the resurrection of Christ, and that's what keeps us kind of in this world, because something happened to the body of Christ that we hope one day will happen to ours. Okay, so if you're a Jew in the first century and you're in Jerusalem, you probably, and let's say you've heard about Christ, but you didn't meet him. There's three things you probably know about Christianity. One, that Jesus did a lot of miracles. Everybody, everybody believed that Jesus did miracles. It was one of his defi the defining features of his ministry. The second thing you know is that he was crucified by the Romans. 
And the third thing you know is that his disciples proclaim that he rose from the dead on the third day. Those are probably, you know, you don't have books, you don't have the New Testament, you don't have Twitter. You, you simply hear these facts. So you know miracles, crucifixion, resurrection. Well, actually, there were a lot of people who did, or at least claimed to do miracles in the first century. So while that was unique, that was a, a defining aspect of Christ, it was not unique in their world. Two, lots of people died by crucifixion. In fact, if you got on the bad side of the Romans and you weren't a citizen, crucifixion was probably the way you were going to go out. So nothing unique about that either. But the fact that he rose from the dead, that's, that's, that's unique. So that's the, the resurrection is the central fact. And that's, that's why we decided when we were uh, planning this course, uh, even though a couple weeks ago we had a class on the Gospels in general and are they reliable, I wanted to focus in on the resurrection and talk about good reasons for believing it. It's a, it's, it's a, it's a stumbling block. And I don't want us to gloss over it. Okay? All right. So that's, that's my introduction. Um, what I'm going to tell you now is I'm going to throw... Here, well, here's how the structure of the class is going to go. I'm going to throw a bunch of facts at you. I'm going to use my little PowerPoint. And uh, you can so to give you some kind of visual reinforcement um, of what I'm saying. Um, so the next 15 or so minutes, I'm just going to try to give you a lot of facts. So if they're all jumbled in your head by the end of this, that's okay. We'll put them together at the end, especially in terms of um, responding to kind of other explanations, what happened on that morning, on that first Easter morning. Uh, we'll look at Christianity in conversation, especially the resurrection, in conversation with, you know, did he faint on the cross or... Were they having hallucinations? Those kinds of things. Um, okay. So who uh, wants to venture to tell me what is the earliest witness we have? What is the earliest text we have about the resurrection of Christ? I'll give you a hint. It's in the Bible. Where do, you think, where do you think it comes from in the Bible? Where do we get our information about the resurrection in the Bible? Gospels. I would say, well, actually, not just me, but that is our most detailed account of the resurrection, the Gospels are. But actually, Paul is our earliest witness in the New Testament to the resurrection. I'll move this forward. Try to keep speaking into the mic as I go back and forth. Maybe I can pull this a little closer. Okay. So the earliest, everybody disagrees on this. These are all, the, I'm going to talk about the dates of the Gospels first. And nobody really knows quite when the Gospels were written or in what order, but there's sort of general ideas. Um, the point is, earliest m probably Mark and probably writing around the mid-60s. Okay, next we have Matthew, maybe 85 later. Luke is somewhere in there too, anywhere from 70 to 85. 
a little later. And then most people think John was the latest, uh, around 90, 95, or 100 at the latest. On the other hand, Paul's earliest letter to the Galatians, or Paul's earliest letter, which is to the Galatians, somewhere around 49 to 57. That's at least eight years earlier than Mark was written. Okay, and so I'm, I'm only going to talk about two of Paul's letters. Uh, Galatians is the earliest. It comes into this, kind of, kind of, put trying to put an argument slowly together here for you. Uh, and 1 Corinthians was written in 54 or 55. Paul's incredibly active in his ministry already. He's on missionary journeys. He's starting churches all around the Mediterranean, uh, well before the Gospels have been written. Okay, there are oral, oral traditions circulating, and we'll get into those in a little bit, but. Um, and Paul's talking about the resurrection in his letters. In 1 Corinthians, he's talking about it at length and in detail, about what it means and the nature of it. Okay, so now I'm going to give, those are the dates for the Gospels, for Paul's letters. If, if, if you're writing things down, just jot down these dates real quick, because we're going to try to put them into a recognizable constellation later. Okay. This seems like a no-brainer, but what year is Christ's birth? Actually, most scholars put it at 4 BC. So, uh, they, you know, they, they take the chronology, the Gospels give us some markers. You know, Luke says um, Jesus was born when Quirinius was governor of Syria. Um, we know when Pilate was in charge of uh, Judea. We, we know a lot of dates about that. They also know, uh, you know, they've, they've correlated, the, you know, astronomical data. Um, the Jews were on, uh, in the first century were on a lunar calendar. Um, they kind of can tell when maybe this year was. So they, they put all this together. I'm not going to go through it, but they put it all together, and 4 BC is about what they get. Most scholars agree Jesus was born four years before Christ. The, the world of New Testament scholarship is a wild and woolly world. All kinds of crazy things are happening. Um, so yeah, 4 BC. Next, the crucifix, that puts the crucifixion about, probably about 30 AD. One of the gospels says, when Jesus started his ministry, he was about 30 years old. And then they kind of how many Passovers happen in the Gospels, that kind of thing. Looks like maybe about 33, 34 years. Okay, Paul's conversion happens just a couple years later. He's on the road to Damascus. He sees the risen Christ. He's converted to Christianity. And then, and I'll get into this in a little more detail in a little bit, Paul takes a trip to Jerusalem to visit Peter and James. And we know that that probably happened around 35 AD. Okay? So a lot of dates. But basically I talk about Christ's birth and the crucifixion in order to date Paul's conversion and his trip to Jerusalem. So that's kind of what you need to remember. And Paul was writing well before the Gospels. So we're going to look at Paul for our sort of historical evidence of, or at least our textual evidence of the resurrection. 
because, and this is, uh, if you're following along in your outline, I'm going to move on to letter B in number two, Roman numeral two. Two important criteria and one clarification. I'm going to throw a lot of words at you now that sound very fancy. The first one is multiple attestation. This is when you have, when, when historians are sifting through ancient texts and they're trying to determine whether something happened and how and when. One of the things that we like to have as historians is, I say we, I'm not a historian, but one of the things we like to have is multiple attestation. We like to have more than one person talking about this event so that we can kind of see it in 3D. And if they, if they say things differently, oh, okay, well, which one seems more likely to be true? That actually is not bad. That's good. It helps you sift through the evidence, especially when they're not relying on each other, when they haven't talked to each other. You know, they, they write these things down, and then we get this kind of technicolor view of what happened if we have multiple attestation, okay? That's one criteria for kind of sifting historical data. The next one is the antiquity of the witness. That just means how old is your source? Because if you're a historian, the closer a source is to the event that happened, the more likely it is to be reliable. That's just kind of common sense, right? So they look for multiple attestation, they look for antiquity of the witness. Those are two kind of major, major historical criteria. And then here's my clarification. A note about historical certainty. When we talk about whether something happened in the past, especially an ancient event, don't, don't let, if you're, if, you know, if you're in a, an apologetic type of conversation with yourself or somebody else, um, don't, don't let, don't be, don't be browbeat into needing to provide the sort of scientific certainty that's expected of you know, things like cell biology. It's, it, seems, it seems like a no-brainer, but this happens all the time. Within the discipline of New Testament studies, oh, well, we don't know for sure whether it happened, and we're going to presume it didn't because all these reasons, when we might have very good reasons to believe it, and, uh, and when you're dealing with historical events, ancient historical events, when we can say with confidence that an event happened, it means all the sources point to the plausibility of its having happened. That's the best you can do when you're dealing with something that happened 2,000 years ago or 5,000 years ago, you know? So, so don't, let, don't let that kind of our sort of scientific mindset that we think we need for certain, you know, like whether a drug is actually effective or dangerous, you know, that's, that's a different kind of science than the science of historical inquiry, okay? So if we, if we want to say that, yes, the resurrection happened, it doesn't mean we can prove it like it's under a microscope. It means, do the sources indicate that it likely happened, right? That's all, that's, that's all any historian can do. So to say that is not like you're admitting some kind of weakness. Hey, Jeff, yeah. could we throw out there maybe a little definition of scientific Certitude is, uh, and why it's impossible, and why we shouldn't be duped by this is scientific certitude means that we provide a mathematical formula that anyone in any laboratory 
or, or study centers around the world mm -hmm. can repeat with certainty. Yeah. The hydrogen plus oxygen equals right. water. Yeah, so the, sort of the basis of what he's saying is that the basis of historical, or not sorry, scientific experimentation is it's, you can repeat it. You, uh, you, you have a sort of mathematical formula that allows other people to do the same thing and repeat the experiment with the same results. And that's just not how the discipline of history works. Is that, is that essentially what you're saying? Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Okay, so. Um, everything I'm going to say after this sort of fl uh, flows from these two ideas of multiple attestation and antiquity of the witness. Are you all with me? Okay. I did want to say, especially since this is going to be on the internet, um, I don't want to get accused of plagiarism, and I also want to help you. Um, I, these are not my own ideas. I didn't do this research myself. Um, this little book, it's called Did the Resurrection Happen? A Conversation with Gary Habermas and Anthony Flew, edited by David Baggett. Um, this is a great little book um, where, uh, I guess, let me step back before I extol the virtues of the book. Um, Gary Habermas and this author, Michael Lacona, um, I'm, re I'm relying on their 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 research and the kind of their arguments for the resurrection. And if you want to look it up and see more detail, this is a great book because it's, um, it's actually kind of the, a convert, well it says a conversation right here between Gary Habermas and Anthony Flew is a philosopher um, who famously, a famous atheist philosopher one of the most famous atheist philosophers, right? He had written articles and books, kind of on why miracles are impossible and why um, why there's no such thing as a god. Um, announced uh, about five or six years ago, um, actually about more like ten years ago now, um, that he he, he belie now believed there was a god. He had changed his mind after decades of of philosophical research and kind of trying to debunk Christianity, and largely because of his conversations with Gary Habermas, uh, who is a New Testament scholar at L Liberty University. Um, and they were great friends. I mean, this guy kind of, he, he didn't become a Christian. He became, what he, he, by his own admission, a deist. But this is a conversation they had about the resurrection, and it just kind of lays it all out. And it's really good and accessible. And it has some other, other materials in it, sort of a kind of a hodgepodge of a book. But if you're looking for kind of a one-stop shop on this uh, information, that did the resurrection happen? This is a really good book. And a, a, an easy and quick read. Uh, the, the Mountain is the Resurrection of Jesus by Michael Lacona. He was a student of Habermas's, And um, this is a 700-page book, kind of sifting all the historical data in detail. Um, I'm grateful to have come across this I, because it was assigned to me. Um, I, I edited this book, um, so I had to read it. And then they wanted me to make the index, so I had to read it again. So I got to know this book really well. Um, so if you're really curious and you really want to get into the details, check this book out. Um, it's actually, it's just long. It's not dense, you know, it's not, you, I think you probably will be able to understand it, but you might get bored. Um, 
third one is this is called um, Evidence for God, 50 Arguments for Faith from the Bible, History, Philosophy, and Science. Uh, it's Michael Lacona is one of the uh, editors. Gary Habermas has some chapters in here too. Um, and the chapters on the Bible and the resurrection are really good. And um, <clears throat> if you suffer, like uh, most people, um, from a short attention span, these, these chapters are really short and pithy. So um, the books, the books. I mean, it's not short, but it, it's got nice, quick, short chapters to kind of give you an overview of the, of the ideas. So sorry that that's a little uh, aside to both prevent myself from getting accused of stealing ideas and, and citing my sources and to recommend those, those books to you. Okay. So diving back in, I want to keep those ideas of multiple attestation, antiquity of the witness, i.e., did more than one person say it, and when did they say it in relation to what the event that happened, the event in question. Okay, now I'm going to read to you Paul's first kind of mention of the resurrection. 1 Corinthians 15, 3 to 8. For I delivered to you, I guess I can read it on my screen, as of first importance, what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, that's Peter, then to the twelve, then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. Okay? Now I want to unpack this passage a little bit because there's actually a lot, a lot going on here. It looks pretty straightforward, but the background of this passage is amazing. Okay, look at that first sentence, first of all. For I I've italicized the keywords here. I, for I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. These two words, these two Greek words, delivered and received, are actually technical language. Now, if you remember uh, our first week with Ricky, we're in a pre-printing press world where oral culture oral formulas, oral tradition, are the way that information gets passed down. There, there are entire books written about this because the printing press changed everything. It changed the way we view the world, actually, and the way that we view kind of the uh, authority of information. In the first century, and actually Christianity is sort of responsible, both in the printing press but also earlier, is responsible for books. The, fa the fact that we, that we view books as important. It was the Christians who first thought that. Anyway, um, but in their world, oral information was reliable information. Print information, stuff that was on a, uh, either a sort of codex, which is a primitive sort of book, or a scroll, that was there to ensure that the oral information got passed on correctly. But you didn't, you didn't go to a print source to sort of verify. Uh, the best analogy I thought of for, for kind of our thinking about this 
is um, we've all used the joke, I read it on the internet, so it must be true, right? So the internet, the, the, the rise of the internet is the closest thing we have to any sort of print, pre-print revolution because there's all this stuff being printed and, and put out there and published in the world and we, there's no real mechanism for understanding whether it's authoritative or not, you know? Um, we, we don't, we, if we want the reliable, the real information, we go to a book, right? If it's on the information, if it's on the internet, any, any yo-yo could have said it, right? There's no, there's no sense of authority or vetting, um, which I learned in college when I started a blog. Um, <laughs> it's not on there anymore, so don't go look it up. Um, that, that's the way, like, oral information, the information held in the mind, that was reliable information, okay? Uh, print information was, it was there to be checked every once in a while against the oral information. Um, and when Paul says, I delivered to you what I also received, this is technical language. Everybody agrees on this, historians, scholars, uh, liberal, conservative, this is, this is language for, I'm delivering, delivering to you what is an oral formula. Uh, these, are, these are words, these are actually words for tradition. Um, an ungainly but plausible translation would be, for I traditioned to you as of first importance what I also was traditioned. Okay, so he's giving them a unit of information as of first importance that was given to him, probably by the apostles, right? Okay, so if we're going to get this kind of setup, for I delivered to you what I also received, uh, we're going to expect a sort of structured, formal, orally repetitive, memorable kind of phrase. So look how it's, look how it's structured. That Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. That he was buried. That he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared. So that, 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 that. And it's sort of long, short, long, short. This is, this is an early creed-like piece of information embedded within 1 Corinthians, written in 54 or 55, remember. So this is information that Paul got before. And then he goes on. After appeared, who did he appear to? To Cephas, that is Peter, to the twelve, to more than 500 brothers at one time, to James, to all the apostles. And then he, let, he adds his own qualification. And this is where they think he's probably adding to the creed a little bit. As to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. Okay, so Paul's inserting himself into this, into this tradition. Jeff, yeah. question. That's a good question. They're talking about the Old Testament. They're talking about the prophecies in Isaiah, probably especially Isaiah 53, the suffering servant, um, and all the um, all the quotations that if you go through the Gospels, especially Matthew, that they use. You know, out of Egypt I called my son. Um, all these things that point to the old the, the Old Testament prophecies about Christ. Yeah. That, that's a good point. It's, you know, not according to Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. It's not what he's saying. 
Okay, so going back to our chronology a little bit. Can I jump in? Oh, yeah. Um, does the appearance twice, but not in all four of the bats, in accordance with the scriptures, give them a, a place of prominence within that? The, um, I've heard it explained the, the buried, that he was buried is sort of a proof that he died. Mm -hmm. That he appeared was a proof that he was raised. Yeah. So is there that kind of an interplay? I think so. I think so. Yeah, it might help to sort of indent those two lower ones to show that they're subordinate clauses, sort of. Yeah. Or change it to since instead of Yeah, yeah. Although the the uh, the terminology is exactly the same. The the word is the same. But yeah, they're uh, the Christ died for our sins and was raised on the third day. Yeah, and the, the, the fact that he was buried and appeared, that's, that's exactly right. They're, they're proofs. And we'll get into that, actually. That's, that's, in, that's interesting. It's, it's almost got the sense of an affidavit. Mm -hmm. He's laying out mm -hmm. a, exactly. a, 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 a legal case yeah. for a very well thought out yeah. description. Yeah, and as you see, that's, that's exactly what we have. Um, so look at Galatians 1. Galatians, in Galatians 1 and 2... And again, this is Paul's earliest letter. Uh, he gives us a little um, account of where he's been and what he's been doing. Uh, he says, But when he who had set me apart before I was born and who called me by his grace was pleased to reveal his son to me, that's, he's talking about his conversion uh, on the road to Damascus, in order that I might preach him according to the, among the Gentiles, I did not immediately consult with anyone, nor did I go out to Jerusalem, to those who were apostles before me. But I went away into Arabia and, and returned again to Damascus. Then after three years, I went up to Jerusalem. Okay, that's that 35. So we, we can place this conversion maybe around 32. Uh, and then most people think that then after three years includes that time in Arabia and, Dama and, uh, Arabia and Damascus. So three years following his conversion, he went to Jerusalem to visit Cephas, and remained with him for 15 days. But I saw none of the other apostles except James, the Lord's brother. And then in Galatians 2, he also talks about going to Jerusalem again 14 years later and conferring with the apostles to make sure they have the same gospel and that they're preaching the same gospel. So what, what, is, what is Paul doing with Peter when he's there after three years? Well, he's not, you know, playing Tetris, right? He's, he's talking to him about the gospel. He's getting the necessary information from him. He's conferring with him, comparing notes, probably receiving this information that he's given to the Corinthians, right? This little piece of traditional oral formula. And again, th this is not information that, you know, conservative apologists have made. This is information that all scholars agree on. Whether they believe the resurrection happened or not, this is historical data that's pretty uncontroversial. Okay, so if Paul's getting that information from Peter, in A.D. 35, we have a source five years removed from the crucifixion embedded in 1 Corinthians. And we have all of these checks and balances that multiple attestation gives us. Luke talks about Paul's conversion. Paul talks about it in multiple places. Guess how many sources we have for almost every historical event in antiquity? 
we have one. For the crucifixion and resurrection, we have, leave out the crucifixion, for the resurrection, we have six. Guess, guess what's considered standard for the time of removal from the event? How, how long after was, was this text or history written? 100 years. We have a wealth of information about what happened in Jerusalem in 30 AD. And we have better historical sources than any other event in history, okay? It, it just blows any other source out of the water. You know, um, Julius Caesar crossing the Rubicon, those kinds of things. If, 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 this, if historical scholars took the kind of skepticism they take to the biblical data, no event in history would have happened, right? We, we wouldn't know anything. Okay, I think that's pretty cool. When I first read that and came across that, my heart was strangely warmed in the words of John Wesley. Uh, I, I felt like, wow, that's, that takes you back to the heart of the origin of Christian proclamation of Christ's resurrection, which is really important for a lot of skeptical reasons. The, a, 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 lot of, a lot of skeptics think, well, the, the original disciples didn't actually believe you know, Christ was God. That came up later. Uh, a sort of a mythological kind of folklorish thing in their superstitious culture grew up. Now they were proclaiming this early, early, early in Jerusalem, less than five years after Christ was raised. This was kind of tradition that he, was, that he died for our sins and that he was raised on the third day. Okay, um, any questions about that before um, I move on. I'm going to move on to the Gospels now a little bit. Look at, look at what they say about the resurrection, especially in terms of apologetics. Now, if you keep reading in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul says all kinds of stuff that we could dive into for years that still confuse theologians and historians, and, but it's also very deep and enriching. Uh, but this is, this is the beginning of his, or, uh, sorry, 1 Corinthians is the beginning of his kind of discourse on the resurrection. So again, we're not, we're not talking about the meaning so much as the history. Okay, the first, the first thing I want to talk about with uh, the Gospels, we'll talk about sort of the, the supposed discrepancies among the Gospels. Often you hear, well, they couldn't even get their stories straight. Uh, and there's all kinds of, all kinds of differences among the, the four accounts of the resurrection in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And uh, also as a preliminary, uh, throughout, especially Matthew, Mark, and Luke, the synoptics, synoptic gospels, um, there's a lot of overlap where it's clear they were using some kind of common source, whether it's an oral tradition or some other written document we don't have anymore. The wording is exactly the same in a lot of, a lot of stuff in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. In the resurrection accounts, none of that's there. So these are all independent accounts. Remember that. So we're dealing with multiple attestation again. We're not dealing with somebody going back to some common source and all using that. Okay? So we got four independent sources about what happened on the first Easter morning. Okay, so they're, they're, in the discrepancies of the Gospels, there are, there are um, sort of four, four things that people talk about. 
So the first, first one is who, who came to the tomb on that Easter morning? Matthew, as you can see, has Mary Magdalene and the other Mary. Mark has Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of James and Salome. Luke, Mary Magdalene, Joanna, Mary the mother of James and the other women with them. And John only mentions Mary Magdalene. Now I think most of the stuff we're going to talk about my dad addressed a couple weeks ago. Just because John only mentions Mary, that doesn't mean there weren't others there, right? Uh, like he, I, the illustration, if I say there's one window in my, or if I say there's a window in my basement, uh, that's different. That doesn't mean there aren't other windows in the basement, right? Um, so the fact that they mention different people, uh, I, I don't, I don't think is a big deal. It doesn't compromise the historical integrity. Uh, the second one is who rolled away the stone? Uh, was it an earthquake, or what, did an angel roll it back after the earthquake, as in Matthew? Uh, and then in the other three, the women find the stone had already been rolled away. That's another difference. I'm going to try to go through these a little bit quick and address them sort of in total at the end. The third one is who showed up at the tomb? Um, Matthew and Mark have one angel, and Luke and John have two angels. Again, uh, it may just be addressing in the first couple, the one who talked to them is who mentioned it, or is who they mentioned. The last one is, what did the women do? Uh, basically, Matthew, Luke, and John all have the, the women ran away in fear and amazement and told the disciples what had happened. Mark has, they fled from the tomb, for terror and amazement had seized them, and they said nothing to anyone. So the, the, discrep the supposed discrepancy is, in one they go tell the disciples, in the other they don't. Um, Mark is kind of a mess right here, uh, because for, for a couple of reasons. Um, one, uh, clearly they did tell somebody, because we're reading it, right? Um, so there might be other literary things going on that he's trying to say, or he's just cutting the narrative off there. Another problem is that Mark does go on after this for uh, another um, eight verses or so. Uh, but the, that's, and that's where, you, you know, Jesus talks about you can handle snakes and you won't get bitten uh, and, and stuff like that. And he says a lot of stuff that's very common with Luke. Um, but... The, the earliest manuscripts that we have, if you remember the uh, Ricky's first talk, they don't have that passage. And most scholars think it's sort of a later edition. And even some scholars think that we actually don't have the original ending. Somehow it got lost, like the last leaf of scroll broke off of the original document or something. We just don't know. Um, so thankfully, we have the other three Gospels to fill out the account, right? Um, but... Uh, did the women go tell anybody? Clearly they did. Otherwise, we wouldn't be standing here today. 
you know, if they would have been trying to deliberately concoct a story, you would have thought that they would have got their lives together. Yeah. And, and th this says to me that they almost perhaps deliberately didn't draw heavily upon each other. They they encouraged each other to tell it like you saw it. Yeah. Yeah, that's exactly right. You know, if if we were talking about collusion or ma something made up, you you would think they would have gotten their. This is actually a witness to the, their authenticity. And again, historians say if you get four accounts of anything from eyewitnesses, they'll they'll be different. Cr criminologists say that about uh, crime scene events. Oh, what did you see? Well, I saw two guys running away with a gun after shooting somebody, and you know, well, I saw one guy running away with a gun. And they have to figure out, this is normal human behavior, and this is, this is what we'd expect from four people writing different things. They're gonna notice different things, they're gonna see things from their own perspective. Um, and that's what we get. That's what Matthew and Mark and Luke and John are doing. These are not written um, by eyewitnesses. They're, witness, they're talking to people who were there, they're getting their accounts, they're, they're picking up the kind of pieces of oral tradition that have come down to them and they're const constructing a narrative out of it. You're going to get a, a lot of different kind of details that, that look different. Um, so here's the convergences we have. Jesus was buried in the tomb of Jer Joseph of Arimathea in or near Jerusalem. I didn't put that in the, the gospel discrepancies or anything, but all four gospels talk about this. He was buried in a tomb. And Joseph uh, of Arimathea was the one who did it. On the third day, early in the morning, Mary Magdalene, probably with other women, found the tomb empty. The third one, these women met one or more angelic beings at the tomb. And four, Jesus subsequently appeared to his disciples. All the Gospels agree on that. This, the, this is kind of the basic structure of all four of the, the kind of resurrection narratives. And it kind of looks like Paul's list, right? It looks like his oral tradition. This, these are the things that happen. Um, and these are the things that everybody agrees on. The tomb was found to be empty. They were in despair before that. After that, something changed. And we'll get into that in a little bit. Like, How do you account for their changed lives if what they said happened didn't happen. Okay, so this is the part where I'm going to try to, that's a lot of data. Um, I'm going to try to put it all together into um, facts about the resurrection. And if you read Gary Habermas, he has a list of sort of 12 facts usually that he that he has about the resurrection that okay let's let's at least agree you don't have to believe in the inspiration of scripture you don't even have to believe in god we can all agree on these facts and he has 12 of them i've boiled it and sometimes he boils it down to four because the kind of idea is if you're talking to a skeptic or somebody you want to get you want to have the strongest amount of agreement you can have from the smallest amount of facts that you can agree on in order to get the maximum benefit. So that's what, that's what we're working through. Um, what, are, what are the facts that we have? One, Jesus died by crucifixion. Nobody disagrees with that who is a serious historian. 
Jew, like I said, he was buried in a known tomb. Joseph of Arimathea was a well-known person in Jerusalem. Three, the tomb was then discovered to be empty. Now, this has, in the, in the kind of the skeptical world of New Testament scholarship, this has actually gained a lot of ground because scholars are, are recognizing if the tomb wasn't found to be empty, does, that doesn't explain anything in the Gospels, and it doesn't explain anything historically. If, 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 there was still an empty, if there was still a tomb that had somebody in it, or there was not a known tomb where uh, they didn't, they, where's, that Jesus was buried, then you can't put things together as well. So more and more people are saying, yes, there's an empty tomb. Uh, even if you don't believe it and you can't explain it, you kind of have to admit it. And the fourth is the disciples had experiences, and this is, this is worded carefully. The disciples had experiences they believed were the risen Christ. This is the thing that we can agree on with a skeptic, right? At least they believed it was happening. Even if it didn't happen, they believed it, it was happening. Nobody disputes that. Okay, so those are the four facts we're gonna, I'm going to talk about in the last kind of, got like 20, 5, 10. I want to leave a little room for questions or discussion if, at the end, but um, we'll take these four facts and we'll kind of bounce them off of other theories. So we're, we're doing what's called argument to the best explanation. So we've got these facts. What's the best explanation for them? Okay. Um, so we're going to bounce them off other explanations uh, for what happened on Easter morning. So we'll, we'll go through, I think I have six uh, at the end. Yeah. And the, the things that will be on here on the, my PowerPoint, I think, are a little different from what's on your um, outline, but they're, they're essentially the same. They mean the same thing. It's a multiple attestation kind of thing going on. Okay, so the first one, explanation that gets uh, tossed around, is that Jesus swooned on the cross, or he fainted, or he didn't actually die, or he went into some kind of like trauma-induced coma. Um, this is what it says like in the Quran. If you're, if you're talking to a Muslim, often this, this gets trotted out. Um, Number of problems. We'll respond to them one by one. Okay, so the first thing is people don't survive crucifixions. It's just it, the Romans were an efficient and a disciplined people, and they developed the mode of execution known as crucifixion in order to make it slow and effective so that uh, it would ward you off from disobeying them because it would, it would definitely be painful and torturous but it would also end up killing you. You know, that's, uh, that's, just, how, that's just how the Romans were. Um, and actually, if you read you know, any of those Habermas books, um, modern medical doctors have you know, asked, asked for volunteers, anybody want to be crucified? Um, and um, amazingly, they get, they get people. Um, and they don't, they don't nail their hands. You don't, you don't actually have to nail their hands to the cross to kill them. Uh, all you got to do is tie them up there, and 
um, whatever other beatings or tortures they've endured, they die slowly by asphyxiation. Most people uh, who have uh, undergone these experiments, they lose consciousness in like 12 minutes. And uh, as long as they can push themselves up, you know, kind of on the, on the cross and support themselves, um, they, they, they can, you know, get a breath. And then they kind of collapse back down and they start, it just, it just pulls the body into a shape where you can't breathe. Um, so, and, and, and I, there's, I don't think there's any evidence that anybody ever survived a crucifixion. It just, it, it didn't happen. It, it's designed to be effective, and it was. Um, two, they, they stabbed him in the heart. And there is evidence, there's historical evidence that Jesus was not the only one who was stabbed. Uh, and they, you know, they talk about blood and water flowing out, I think, in the Gospel of John. And um, that's evidence that the kind of the, the sack around the fluid, sack of fluid around the heart was, was burst. Um, so you also don't survive if you're stabbed in the heart and crucified. Third, and I, this is kind of an entertaining one, I think. The church pro- proclaimed Jesus as risen and not just alive. So, and this is where the meaning comes into a little bit, because first century people, they were familiar with resurrection. There were hints of it in the Old Testament. It was not an unprecedented idea for Jews. Uh, you get hints of it in Ezekiel. You get hints of it in Daniel. Um, and in the <clears throat> Sorry, excuse me. In the intertestamental literature, the, the stuff that happened between the Old and New Testament, resurrection became a very big idea. So they knew it was they knew what to expect of it, and there was an expectation of everybody's going to be resurrected someday. Um, so Jesus is proclaimed as the fruits, first fruits of the resurrection. So imagine Peter sitting in the upper room, and Jesus shows up at the door. He's been tortured. He's been stabbed. He's been whipped. He's exhausted. He's dirty. He's bloody. And he shows up at your door and says, I'm the first fruits of the resurrection. It doesn't add up, right? Uh, they, would, they wouldn't have proclaimed a resurrection. They would have taken him to the doctor, right? So the, the fact that this was incorporated theologically and seamlessly into what they already knew to expect uh, points to the fact that he at least didn't faint on the cross. That, that would be, that'd be a pretty poor kind of expectation of, of your own resurrection and of what they would have expected. Okay? So the next one is the disciples either lied uh, and or stole the body, uh, which shows up in Matthew, right? You know, th- this theory has been going around to this day, it says, that, that the disciples stole the body. Um, so let's look at the responses to that. Okay, we have the empty tomb in Jerusalem, a known tomb by a wealthy, prominent citizen. Um, if there wasn't an empty tomb, people could have checked it out. It was there for the verification. You could go and see. Oh, he's raised. Well, I know where they buried him, so let's go. Let's go check it out, shouldn't we? Um, so th- it would have been a it would have been a pretty poor lie 
to, to have this kind of evidence on your hands if, if, there's, if you're proclaiming an empty tomb. And I, sh I should say that in the sort of oral fragments of tradition that show up in our Gospels, there, there is a Jesus appeared tradition and there's an empty tomb tradition. So they were serious about, and the tomb was empty. It wasn't just a uh, sort of outworking of, yes, he was raised, you know, like the fact that they, they found uh, nothing in the tomb, the Gospels emphasize that uh, in their narratives. Um, this, this is a, a, another one of those common sense ones. Just, if they lied, people don't die for it. Uh, their lives were changed. And uh, Chuck Colson has a great um, quote about, you know, he was involved in Watergate. And they had people at the highest levels all colluding in secrecy about these events. And you, you, you can't keep a collusion of a lie, on a lie like that secret. It just doesn't happen. And uh, so, and there's no, there's no evidence that uh, anybody broke, you know, or there was, there was that somebody finally confessed, oh, yeah, we we actually stole it. There's no documents out there that say that. Uh, it's only a conjecture. And if, if they had colluded like that and decided to lie, uh, <clears throat> somebody would have broken. They all, they all died. They all died for their, uh, for their belief and their proclamation. In, in this context, was, uh, what happened was so outside the norm that if there had been a crime to steal the body and all. The way it happened was a poor reflection on the Romans' authority. Because when you put two of your soldiers there under threat of death to guard something, and the seal is broken, and the six-ton stone is rolled out of the way, you would have thought that if that had happened by the disciples, the Romans would have really quickly rolled the stone back and resealed it and, and put new guards. What happened was so out of the ordinary that they didn't, the Romans didn't believe this, I believe, because they would have tried to clean up the crime scene and, and you know, recast everything. They were taken aback by this. Yeah. And, and they, they didn't respond as if a crime had been done against them and yeah. go hunting for the perpetrators right. and all that business. Yeah. Yeah, for, for, for those watching at home, Dave was saying that Roman, uh, Roman power and the Roman military presence, you know, first of all, it, it wouldn't have, the disciples wouldn't have been able to overpower two centurions or Roman soldiers at least. Uh, and if, the, if, if something had happened, you know, they, they would have tried to patch over it pretty quickly. Uh, and not and, and find ways to to downplay it. Um, so yeah, and that's there's a long Matthew alone among the Gospels has a long kind of narrative about pl the placing of the Roman soldiers at the tomb and and the Jewish leaders saying you know they you know he predicted he was going to do this so please seal it up and guard it and they said okay and then it happened anyway so. Um, the last one is that they, if, if you're trying to make a strong case for something you don't actually believe and you're a writer in the first century, you don't, you don't put women at the tomb first. Uh, 
sorry, ladies, it wouldn't, it, in a lot of ways it wouldn't have been great to grow up in the first century. Um, now, it's been said, you, and you might read in some kind of older apologetics textbooks that um, women were not allowed to testify in court, which is, that's been proven to be not true, but they were generally not considered reliable witnesses. Um, and you get that in the Gospels. They, uh, the, the women go and they talk to Peter and the disciples, and what does it say? It says they thought it was an idle tale. They didn't believe them. They didn't believe them. So, uh, and, I, and that's another wonderful thing about the Gospels and, and early Christianity is that it gave a place to women that they didn't have before. Um, you know, an, an apostle, in a loose sense, is somebody who has been tasked with proclaiming the message of the risen Christ. So in a lot of ways, the women are the first apostles. They're the ones who are tasked with giving the good news to the world. Um, so that's, it's, on the one hand, it's, uh, it's, it points to the historical veracity uh, of what they're saying. And on the other hand, it elevates women to a position that they would not have had in the first century otherwise. Okay. Next, um, this is sort of a larger worldview kind of uh, one. I think it, I have the naturalistic theory on your paper. Um, but the, the, the argument that people don't rise from the dead, you know, i.e. miracles just don't happen. Um, and I think Ricky will get into the more worldview kind of stuff in a, in a week or two. But... Um, I want to address a couple of things. Um, David Hume, a philosopher in England in, I believe, the 19th century, um, is one of the, either the 18th or 19th, um, one of the main, he, he made this, has made the strongest argument along these lines um, that uh, just people, people don't rise from the dead and so, and therefore the resurrection didn't happen. Um, so a couple of things. If God exists, it becomes a lot more likely that they do or they can. You know, that you're already bringing in certain presuppositions to say that miracles don't happen. You're, you're, you're assuming uh, that God doesn't exist. And if the God of the Bible exists, he can do miracles. Um, so, and this is a sort of, a, this is what philosophers call a probabilistic argument. Uh, the probability rises greatly that Jesus rose from the dead if God exists. So if, if you're going to talk about, you can talk about proving God's existence and kind of the, those kinds of issues, but um, things change if you're not assuming an atheistic worldview. Um, the other thing along these lines is uh, if, Jesus, if, if Jesus made the claims he did about himself, um, then he sets up a context where resurrection becomes plausible. Um, let me give a couple examples. So in three places in, I'm going to read from Mark, but it's in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Um, <clears throat> and John makes plenty of them too, but they don't parallel as exactly. Uh, Mark 8.31, And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. Jesus says this, 
publicly. Mark 9.31, he was teaching his disciples, saying to them, The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he is killed, after three days he will rise. Mark 10, 33 and 34. See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles. And they will mock him and spit on him and flog flog him and kill him. And after three days, he will rise. So Jesus is saying these things about himself regularly. These are only the main three. There are a lot of others where he says things like this. Now, if you're a skeptic, you can just say, well, of course, the disciples said he said that. And so when they wanted to say that he rose from the dead, they made him say that earlier in his life, too. But the problem is that most New Testament scholars, liberal, conservative, critical, open, atheist, they think Jesus actually said this. These are, these are things that are so well attested. They're the type of things that people would have said back then, uh, that prophets would have said. Um, and... Uh, the, the fact that all the Gospels agree that G, these, Jesus said these things about himself point to the fact that he, he actually did. These actually go all the way back. You can't, you can't just say, well, Jesus didn't say that. They made him say that. Like, you, you're, you're arguing against mountains of scholarship on whether or not this happened. And you don't have to believe it actually happened to believe that he said that. Um, it's, the, it's the kind of thing Jesus would say. Um, so these, these, these definitely go back to Jesus, the things Jesus said about himself. Now, anybody can say that about himself, but what if people start saying it actually happened? What if they saw him? Then things become a lot different. These, uh, and the miracles he performs, you know, if, if, if somebody claims somebody else rose from the dead, it's a miracle claim that's very hard to substantiate, especially later. Um, and it's a, it's a big, it's a big claim. You know, um, an an extraordinary claim requires extraordinary evidence. And uh, so if somebody says that, you know, so-and-so has risen from the dead, you're going to investigate and look, right? You're going to be pretty skeptical. Um, But if somebody says so-and-so rose from the dead, and they said they would, and they did these things to prove it, they did miracles, they healed people, they had some kind of special divine power. They claimed to be God. They made special claims about themselves. Suddenly resurrection doesn't look so implausible anymore, right? If, if, if the, it's sort of Jesus just putting his money where his mouth is. Uh, sort of in the same way, a much larger in scope uh, instance of what uh, Pastor Jack was talking about a week or two ago when... Um, Jesus forgives the sins of the paralytic on the mat, you know. Oh, uh, in order to prove to you that I'm the Son of God and that I can forgive sins, I'm going to do this other thing and I'm going to heal him. Um, that's sort of what the resurrection is. These, these, uh, these other, this whole context that Jesus sets up for himself makes the resurrection more plausible. So you can't just say miracles don't happen. That means you're importing all these kind of ideas in beforehand. And you're not looking at these claims. This is a really interesting one. A lot of people say that, uh, and a lot of scholars will say, that the the, the disciples had um, grief-induced hallucinations. They were all grieving. They were all in despair. Um, 
their lives were shattered because Jesus had been killed by the Romans. PTSD. <laughs> yeah. <clears throat> um, but actually, this is, uh, this, is, this is one of the least likely things to have happened. So let's look, let's look one by one. For one thing, a hallucination is an interior thing in your mind that doesn't have a referent in reality, right? I'm, I'm up here teaching. I can see these two people sitting here in the front row. They're presumably not, they're, they're, they are presumably also part of reality, right? You all can see them too. A hallucination does not have, like, my eye sees it, my mind constructs the image so that my brain can generate it, you know, all these things are happening. Um, but it's seeing something else in reality. A hallucination doesn't have that. It's totally interior. So how do you get the fact that he appeared to the 12, and the 12 saw him? And we have good textual evidence that goes all the way back, remember, to A.D. 35, that the 12 saw him and that he appeared to more than 500 people at once. 500 people don't have the same hallucination. That's impossible. It's also, un it's also unprecedented in history. And not just like, well, that doesn't happen, but people have actually researched it. Are there, there are no two people in history who have had the same hallucination at the same time. But all the disciples claim to have had this. It's there. It's in the sources. It's well attested. It's good evidence. Also, a lot of research has been done into kind of hallucinogenic states and uh, altered, states of altered consciousness, especially with relation to the Gospels. Um, and another thing is, despair doesn't cause hallucinations. Ecstasy does. Heightened states of consciousness do. People who are low, they don't, they don't generate these vivid hallucinations. It's people who are in extreme circumstances or who are you know, on LSD or something. Um, Paul wasn't grieving. He saw the risen Christ. Uh, it also says he appeared to James, who had not been a believer during Jesus' ministry, and he became a believer. Um, and it's, 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 pretty, it's pretty good evidence that Paul was not having, there's pretty good evidence that Paul was not having a, a vision. You know, there were effects in the physical world of it. Uh, his, his, eye was, his eyes were blinded from the light, that kind of thing. Um, so they had no reason to have a hallucination like this. Paul, Paul, was, Paul would have hallucinated killing Christians, not seeing Jesus. <clears throat> also, um, the empty, we come back to the empty tomb again. It points back to um, the fact that they could have verified it. Somebody says they've seen the, the risen Christ. Oh, well, maybe it was just a hallucination. I'll go to the tomb. Oh, wait a minute, it's empty. You know, you, they could have verified their, uh, or debunked their appearance, the, these supposed appearances. They were happening at the time. Uh, there's a lot more arguments about uh, hallucinations. I'll give you one more. Um, they also, hallucinations don't result in changed lives either, just like a lie doesn't. Um, you know, they, they've done some research. There's a really interesting thing that Habermas gets into about um, 
Navy SEALs who have had, like they, they were in a boat and they, one of them had a hallucination that he was being talked to by an octopus. And, you know, later they were like, dude, you had a hallucination. And he goes, oh, yeah, I guess that doesn't happen, you know. Um, I, I don't, I, now that I'm in a right state of mind, my, I don't actually still believe that. So if they had hallucinations they thought were the risen Christ, they kind of would have seen later, oh, yeah, everything's still the same. The tomb is still occupied, right? Okay, we're about out of time, so I think... Um, This is sort of a weak argument that we only have accounts for, from believers. Well, of course we do. You see, the, you see the risen Christ, you become a believer. You want an account from an unbeliever who saw the risen Christ and verified that it was him and still doesn't believe? That, but people make these arguments. So, um, And James, James and Paul were both converted by the risen Christ in a vision of him, in an appearance by him. Um, a historical account would not would not be considered credible if somebody said, I saw the risen Christ. If we had some kind of document that said, I saw the risen Christ, and I, d I still don't believe that he's the son of God, right? <clears throat> um, and then there's the idea that the Gospels are just legends or folklore um, that, that I mentioned before, um, that they're, they're superstitious accounts. People were gullible. Uh, they believed in miracles, and we modern, refined, enlightened people don't. Um, remember that the, these are early. The, the 1 Corinthians 15, 3 to 8 is five years. That's not a lot of time for religious folklore to bubble up out of the cracks over, I mean, usually it takes centuries for this, these kinds of things to happen. Um, two, the early Christians worshipped Christ as God. They didn't, and the, the, again, there's, there's good evidence for this, um, that what they were doing was not a sort of personality cult, or it was not, um, they thought God was doing th something through Jesus, who was just a man. They actually worshipped him as Yahweh. There's a scholar named Larry Hurtado who's done a lot of good work on this. And then last, um, even though people tended to believe in God and the miraculous more readily, they were still considered miracles in the ancient world. They weren't, they didn't just accept miracles as another part of reality. They, they were extraordinary supernatural events that didn't usually happen. So the fact that they believed this is not just simply that they were unenlightened. Also, you might be engaging in a little bit of what C.S. Lewis calls chronological snobbery if, uh, if you think these people are just gullible. They had rational minds just like we do. They weren't they weren't simply historical, superstitious, naive people. They, they had working brains. They could, they could understand evidence uh, and look through it just like we can. Okay, sorry I've gone a little over. I had to kind of hurry to get through all that, and it's a lot of information. Um, any quick questions before I turn you loose, Matt? The tomb was guarded real closely by the... Uh, the Romans, right, mm -hmm. and and they even would lay there and guard it, and it was what their life on the line. If they so it was, I mean, we we see when when prisoners escape in in uh, Acts, the the Roman guard is going to kill himself because 
that's what was going to happen anyway. So my question might be a silly one, but were the guards there when the stone rolled away? It, it says they, sh they shook and became like dead men, so they were unconscious. That's what Matthew says. So whatever, whatever happened with the angel uh, and the earthquake, they, they, it rendered them unconscious. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Isn't there a lot of uh, evidence from secular historians? There, there. Uh, you mean like ancient historians? Josephus, yes, mentions it um, in a sort of semi-skeptical way, but he is. Uh, he 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 does yes. He says this is what the Christians preach, and and um, others. Um, Tacitus mentions Christ uh, in his history. So, uh, yeah, there, the, the documentation of the existence of uh, and the, the, the events of Christ's life are... The, the first, actually, mention of Jesus Christ actually comes from outside the New Testament, um, from some, some other ancient source. Uh, guess what he's doing in that, in that one source that's even earlier? He's doing a miracle. Even, <laughs> that's what he was known for. I mean, the, the, everybody says that, and, and nobody really disputed it, that at least he was known for it. Yeah. That was at the end of the first century. So this was like 50 years after Galatians <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah, around the time, a little after John, was Gospel of John would have been written. Yeah. Okay, sorry we're late. It's fine. I have a tendency to do that. So... Uh, Thanks for coming.